Today's very special episode of the Sports Reporters on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you as always by ZipRecruiter. The best teams start with great talent. I think the Sports Reporters qualifies. Brian Curtis, myself, Jason Gay. That's a great team. A lot of talent. No one, no one knows the importance of talent more than ZipRecruiter. They deliver qualified candidates fast. So effective, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. That's where you go. Try it for free with that link. ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, which is important because baseball is about to start. And, uh, and we also have a college basketball tournament that has 65 teams in it, Kyle? 64, right? It's got to be even. Yeah, but it starts with like 67. And then it ends at 64 for round two, which is really round one. Okay. You know what I'm talking about. Download the SeatGeek app. Use promo code BS and you get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Go right to SeatGeek.com or you can download that app. Check out TheRinger.com, the world's greatest website. We're right now, we ran today our first Game of Thrones explainer from Mally Rubin and Jason Concepcion, aka the Binge Mode crew. And speaking of... Jason Concepcion, we have a very special episode of NBA Desktop tomorrow. A very, very special episode. An extremely special episode. I'm actually appearing on it, but briefly, but that's not why it's extremely special. I urge you to go to our Twitter feed and watch uh, NBA Desktop tomorrow. That's all I'm going to say. Ringer Podcast Network as well, where you can find the Press Box on Channel 33, hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker. They're all special episodes. All Every episode is special. Fresh Prince in the 90s special episodes. Yeah, each I mean, one. Really. Each one. You learn a lesson about life and things to do and not do. Shoemaker, people were worried about him in 2019. New dad. People were worried his PR was going to go down, but his PR has been solid. He is surprisingly coherent. Yeah, I Seems mean, like I it. say that as an, kind of an old dad. He is yeah. surprisingly with a, a so featuring Brian Curtis and a surprisingly coherent David Shoemaker. <laughs> the press box on Channel Thirty Three, where we also have Tea Time now on Fridays, which is a relative new podcast, um, and also the Sports Rewatchables. We did that on my podcast earlier this week. The Ringer MLB show it's up today. Shoemaker's Mass Man feed is doing WrestleMania Thirty, I think Friday, and then uh, Ringer NFL next week. Niner Seahawks from 2013. So there you go. Coming up, the sports reporters, me, Brian Curtis, Jason Gay. But first, Pearl Jam. All right, we're all here. It's the sports reporters. We haven't done this. I want to say it's been longer than I thought. Maybe like mid-December, late December, that's somewhere in there. We're overdue. Last year, yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. Biggest yeah. thing that's happened, Dan Jenkins died, which Curtis wrote about and talked about in the press box. So I don't want to go into it in too much detail. It did. The one thing I will say, um, it, it is that the last of those old school sports writers that we all kind of grew up reading about that, you know, someday when I... When I get to be an adult <laughs> sports writer, I'll be at the Masters and I'll have a scotch and Dan Jenkins will be there and I'll smoke and we'll blow cigarette smoke on each other and then write a story on Deadline. It just feels like it's a million years ago now. And reading those stories, uh, that was my reaction. What was your reaction, Jason? 
I I mean, it absolutely, the era already felt over, but his passing definitely closes it. And I agree. I mean, the the lives that these guys led don't exist for anybody anymore. There is no next generation of Dan Jenkins. That door has closed. Yeah. And I guess I got in this conversation with somebody where I was like, I think we all love to imagine that the old guys naturally were that cool. That just being a sports writer in the 60s, you know, you wore a certain kind of suit, right? You drank yeah. a certain kind of way. And I think that's all true. But I, I think the, thing, the, the secret is I think Dan learned that all stuff from the movies. Yeah. I think he was watching 40s movies. And he always just struck me as a guy who was like a movie star pretending to be a sports writer. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, and he was like, he was that idea. If you cast a sports writer just right, the guy always had the last line, always had the last word, knew how to handle a sketch, knew how to talk to a bartender. Yeah. In just the right way. Like that, that was Dan to me. The other sort of dynamic is the idea of the writer just writing the piece and then putting the, you know, the magazine comes out and that's it. That's that. And we all know that nowadays just publication is kind of phase one of what it is to be a sports writer in uh, 2019. That that just sort of, you know, fires up the engine and fires up the conversation and you're responding to people immediately. And then there's this whole other secondary life a story takes on as people, you know, go at it and you go back at them and so on. And just the, the kind of having a separation from all that just feels so unusual. I also think, you know, anybody who became famous at Sports Illustrated, it was basically like 10 famous sports writers now all all kind of grouped together because there were no national sports writers back then. And that was really the only place you read Sports Illustrated, you read Sporting News mm -hmm. and Sport Magazine and for a few years there inside sports. But other than that, your local newspaper was only the people that lived in that city in the extended city that read it. So I thought all these Boston Globe guys were amazing and yeah. You know, Bob Ryan and Lee Monfield and Ray Fitzgerald, but like Curtis never read one of those dudes. There's just no way. A columnist in Mississippi made this point. He's like, if you grew up in that certain era, and it's kind of our era too, by the yeah. way. It was yeah. my generation. Then I think, how old's how old are you, Jason? I'm 79. Okay. No, but I'm in my <laughs> mid-40s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's so somewhere between Curtis and me, and you are in the middle. But yeah, that was our extended generation. And if you heard like the best sports columnists in the world are Red Smith. Jim Murray, and then you could update it for us, Lupica, you know, whoever, whoever the hot guys were in the 70s, 80s, Mitch Album, whatever. You couldn't read those guys. No. Nah. But Dan Jenkins and SI came to your mailbox is what this guy in Mississippi was writing. So they had this huge advantage. You had yeah. to go to the library and hope those guys wrote a collection or something like that. Oh, yeah. I remember, I remember being at some bookstore in Massachusetts when I was in college, and Mitch Album he used to do these greatest hits books called Live Album. The Live Album. It wasn't even the first one. It was Live <laughs> Album 2 or 3. And I'm like, yeah. oh, this is Mitch Album. Yeah. I've heard it. And I bought this book and read all the columns. And I was like, this is really cool. You get yeah. to read Mitch Album. And now we have internet archives. Yeah. You know, people always ask me, why haven't you done like a, a collection of your things? And I was like, I... I guess I could, but why would people could just find them online? Like, why would they have to read them in a book form? What did so Kornheiser I call his book? I'm getting paid in cash or I'm back for more cash. <laughs> yeah. There was, yeah. There was bald as I want to be, I believe. Was the right, other one, right. Yeah. Yeah, so, so back to Jenkins, just for a second. Like, I think if you made that Sports Illustrated roster and you were being pushed, especially in the 70s and the early mid 80s, you just had a much bigger impact than you would have had anywhere else. If you're in Boston, even if you're in the New York Times 
I just don't think it's the same audience. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that that era feels like it, I, it feels like with him, he was the last of that group. And now I, I don't know who's the, who's the who's the dean now, Curtis. Who's the old guy? Uh, no, no, not the guy I'm sitting across from right here. No, the, come the on, ringer. are you no. kind of the dean? Kevin no, Clark. Who, who's the guy? Who, who's the link to the '70s and '80s? The guy who was right there on deadline with a typewriter and cigarettes. Well, now we're in the '70s, '80s generation. But, so who is it? But most of those guys, like you know, Mike Lupica is like you know, the Daily News is kind of doesn't exist as a thing anymore. Yeah. I mean, the difference, right, is that those guys don't have their their publications anymore. I mean, it's yeah. so now we're kind of on the '90s generation of guys who are still around. You know, it's it's Shaughnessy, right? I mean, he starts late '70s. It's come on. Bob, are you asking me who was in the press room? Bob Ryan, but he's not even writing that much no. anymore. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I have a hot take on this. TV has killed the Dan Jenkins successor generation. I was just about to say because it why? should be like Kornheiser and Wilbon, but those guys don't write anymore. Write no, anymore. that was the, that. That's exactly right. That's the portal, right? That's the move. You were to acquire a, a degree of fame, and then you were going to move into television and get your big payday and get your house on Nantucket, and that was that. Listen, guys, I tried. It did not work. Uh, <laughs> I'm back in the newspaper business. I want to update. Let me update Dan Jenkins just to end this conversation. But this will this pulls him into the present. Yeah. Here's the secret of him. He was a huge sports nerd. He was a giant nerd. He yeah. was not one. Of, he was not like Jim Murray, where it's like this is good comedy material for me, but I could also be doing showbiz or I could be doing the business page or whatever. Dan was a huge sports nerd, and he dragged people to college football and golf because he was so excited about right. it. Yeah. He was a great writer, but he was also like. I am so fucking excited to write about this and to be at this major and to be at Texas OU that you person who's not really interested in that would be excited too. And that's people all the way through. That's you. Yeah. That's Zach Lowe. That's other people who have Brian Phillips on tennis who goes, this is so incredibly cool. You have to, you have to read this. Yeah. yeah. And that to me is like the thing that you can bridge him way, way back to the fifties and sixties and get all the way to today. Yeah, Ryan, you're just repurposing material from the press box. I am, Talk but about, like, I have like I have like nine thoughts. <laughs> I, I th I, the thing though is, I think he's probably the last guy that was never interested in being a multimedia. Wait, because because you think like, wait, what about the novels? Well, but that's the thing. He was the old school version of that. His version of branching out to sports writing was like, I'm going to write novels and I'm going to try to write screenplays. Mm -hmm. But that version of that now is, I'm going to get a podcast. I'm going to try to go on TV. I'm going to try to be on Pardon the Interruption or whatever. But people aren't really thinking. I get maybe Lupica's, I guess, doing that too. He's writing those young adult books. Yeah. Yeah. But Jenkins, how many books did he write? And that does so maybe double digits. Yeah. yeah. But he also wrote a whole bunch of screenplays that we probably never saw. He wrote Beverly Hills Cop 2, the first draft. You know this? Is that true? In London. You don't know you didn't know this? I, I somehow didn't know he that. He wrote the un the unproduced screenplay of Beverly Hills Cop 2. Wow. Yeah. You need to have a live reading of that. That Can was Axel Foley's catting, he's undercover. Yeah, he was at the <laughs> Royal Turnberry. <laughs> <laughs> one other thing, and then we'll let Jenkins go, is just uh one of my favorite things that you you brought up in one of the pieces you wrote. I can't remember if it was the Grantland feature or the recent one. Um he just decided he didn't like Tiger Woods. <laughs> he did. <laughs> yeah. He just didn't like the way Tiger Woods had handled some things and fe basically feuded with them, but wasn't even a feud. It was like, you haven't kissed my ring, so okay. I'm not going to acknowledge you either. And they had this kind of icy distance between them. And it's hard to imagine 
I think he's the last writer who could have done that without everybody going, wow, you're a huge douche. How could you, <laughs> why are you handling this this way? Everybody sided with Dan. Yeah. They're like, how dare Tiger Woods not kiss Dan Jenkins' ring? And the way Dan told it to me was he went to Tiger when he was first, you know, blowing up. And he said, I want to talk to Tiger and ask him some things. And I think he'd like to ask me some things. Mm. Meaning like, what was Ben Hogan like? Yeah. Sure. What, were those, what, was, what was it like to be on the course at every major with Arnie? He'd like to ask me that. And the word came back from Tiger's camp like, no, he wouldn't. And he was not happy about that. And yeah, Tiger was on the shit list forever after that. Yeah, I think golf and boxing were the two most sports writery mm-hmm. sports, right? In the 70s, 80s, even the 90s. And golf now, we watch golf and people enjoy it in the moment. They tweet, they put little gifts. Um, and and it's not, you're, you're never thinking like, I can't wait to read the big think piece about this in SI three days from now. <laughs> no. I mean, but the, the tournament's over and six hours later, I'm done. I might hear, you know, the uh, house golf podcast on it. But same thing with boxing. Used to be the fight. Then the second part of the whole spectacle was four or five days later, the big, awesome, giant essay about it. And that's gone too. Now we just have Jason Gay writing a quickie 1200-worder for the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. And, that, yeah. and then I don't think about it anymore. Yeah, that's it, man. Did uh, Jenkins ever do the sports reporters, by the way? I don't know. He Hard to believe he, he didn't get asked. He wouldn't stoop down. Because all his thing. acolytes were on there. Lupica, Kornheiser. Right. Those, were his, those were his guys. He probably was like, I'm not flying to New York for that nonsense. Curtis and I were texting. There's this great sports book about uh, the history of Sports Illustrated. And there's this part about Rick Riley where... Um, it's and it's small. It's like a paragraph, but it's about how as he was really starting to hit it big at SI, he was basically doing this bad Jenkins impersonation of kind of drinking a lot in the golf clubhouse this one night. Not on the page, but off the page. Off the page. Um, and the and somebody was like, it was like watching an exaggerated bad Dan Jenkins impersonation. But people were <laughs> people were offended that he was trying to be Dan Jenkins. Off the page, which mm-hmm. I think is good for the legacy of Dan Jenkins. And Dan was not cuddly. So Dan no. Dan made sure everybody knew what was going on. <laughs> yeah. And Dan, Dan was not, put his arm around him. Oh, he's all right. Yeah. Uh, he, he, you know, he was, he was the kind of guy who wouldn't let you forget. It wouldn't let people forget something like so that. So are all, all the guys from that era of SI, is DeFord, is he, he's not alive anymore, right? Frank died. DeFord died. Yeah. Jenkins died. Yep. Mark Cram died. Mm-hmm. Yep. Andre Legarry's long gone. Long, long gone. Is there anybody left from that? William Knack died. That's right. That's another recent one. It's been a lot in the last year. So I'll, I'll, that whole Knack crew to Ford is gone. and Jenkins all recently. Jesus. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to this because I want to do this thing about that I didn't tell you guys about uh about sports books at the end. I'm but writing. Let's hit some let's hit some topical stuff first. Um Jason, you want to start with this Antonio Brown. He's going to Buffalo. People are starting to write pieces about it just because it started on Twitter. And then 24 hours later, it turned out he wasn't going to Buffalo. What did what did you what did this mean in the big picture of how we cover sports to you? Well, it's even better than that. I think a lot of people went to bed thinking Antonio Brown was on the Bills and then woke up and he wasn't on the Bills. Uh, so like a nightmare, you know, you wake up and it's a totally different thing the next day. But uh, I mean, it's funny to segue to for, to this from Jenkins because I feel where 
celebrity is now in media is in these folks who are kind of the high-frequency day traders of sports media, the people who can give you the scoop on who's going where and when, who's breaking their contract, who's getting traded, who's signing with whom, who's getting drafted. You know, obviously, Wojnowski is the biggest of them all, but I think there are a lot of people. You know, Schefter's probably right there alongside him. That's the big. That's that's how you get the big bucks, and that's how you get real value at especially a big sports media company like ESPN. And I believe it was Rappaport for NFL Network, who's very good, uh, and you know, had bad information or late information, or someone was giving him, you know, just you know, just bad stuff. And he went with Bryant to the Bills, and it was a story. And I believe Bryant, correct me if I'm wrong, that did Schefter correct it? somewhat quickly or say that it was not happening and so there was some sort of uh you know intrigue almost immediately as to whether or not this was going to be a real thing there was insider on insider action which is always the, the <laughs> highlight of these things that's one of Shane curtis's favorite that's when we yeah. get the you godzilla versus mothra kind of yeah. matchup well it's always the it should almost be and it should be have a name because there's a there's a certain ploy where people completely undermine the other tweet while not acknowledging it so it'll be like right. Brian, like Brian just said it was raining outside. And then I come in and I go, such a sunny day here in LA today. There's no sign so, of rain at all. And I'm so clearly so close to the process reports. <laughs> I'm clearly talking about your tweet, Absolutely. but not acknowledging it. Yeah, that they rarely acknowledge each other, do they? Yeah. They credit each other sometimes. I guess Chris Haynes doing the Hulk Hogan thing about Hayward signing with the Celtics yep. to Woj, right? Yeah, that, that was that was pretty much the they don't. They don't normally get that direct. No, they don't. They uh, I would say it's raining. First reported by Brian Curtis of the Ringer. I would say we're in this, <laughs> yeah, that's Brian Curtis first report. I would say we're in this weird era where you trust one max two guys in every sport, mm. and everybody else feels like they're batting two hundred. Like everybody really? else feels like they're okay, but on, yeah. especially on the big ones like the Antonio Browns, they're probably not going to get that. So it's like, you know, Schefter and Glazer, and then it's kind of Woj and, you know, Haynes will get a couple. But it just, it feels like there's, now that it's all agents, it feels like there's two or three guys that have everything locked down. Sometimes yeah. one. And everybody else is just kind of kind of guessing, kind of, you know, and they're wrong a lot. Or running with right. one source. And, yeah. and all fundamentally, all these guys started, you know, as very good reporters and, you know, getting information that people didn't want out there. But as you get more popular, people start to give you information. Then you start to be in the information exchange business. And then you really achieve some sort of strange singularity where you yourself are a story by virtue of the fact that you're just paying attention to it. The fact that you have turned your eyes and, and, and your, your media gaze upon you know, someone's destination, it makes it significant, makes it real, makes it in play. Um, the biggest example of that, of course, is you know the way that you know the Anthony Davis stuff went down with Wojnarowski, where he was, you know, not just revealing this information, but this was obviously sort of the beginning of the process. This was, you know, uh, something that had been, I don't know, embargoed is the right word, but just however it worked, they went to him to obviously get that information out there, and it kicked off the, all the craziness. And he kicked it off on a Monday morning. On a that Monday morning, starts like the nine. Cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, can we make, can you get this out an hour before first take? But by the way, that's no different than what happens in any other sort of media business. We see it, you know, I work at the Wall Street Journal, you know, corporations are like this. They go to favored reporters to 
you know, break corporate news often. Politics, Vanity Fair yesterday, you know, announcing Beto O'Rourke for president. I was um, going to say. This stuff happens in, in, in virtually every uh, format, and it's usually, you know, a, a status thing of the reporter. You know, the higher you up are, are up on the food chain, the more likely they're going to come to you with the good stuff. I guess my fear with it is that if people are relying on information – for their success and, you know, how high their salary can go and stuff like that. Um, it reduces the chance that they're going to be super critical of anybody who might give them that information. And that that enters a weird place that I think has started to infect sports a little bit and is one of the reasons why the media coverage has been so player-friendly, especially in basketball, where – the, the basketball coverage now is so apologetic for the athletes. We've talked about this on the pod before. I'm yeah. not, I'm not, this is not a new topic, but I'm, I'm amazed over and over again, how people, people, people who cover sports are siding with the players over and over again versus some sort of balance or questioning it, or even this whole LeBron thing. I felt like, you know, I, I feel like I'm a dick. Cause I'm like, this is bad what they're doing what LeBron yeah. and Rich did yeah. to the team, yeah. to the young yeah. guys. Like, this is just yeah. bad behavior. No, it's, But I it's didn't, a, I felt like I, I was kind of on an island a little bit. Like, Curtis, there was a couple other people who were, but for the most part, I don't understand why everybody can't agree that this is a bad way to be the best player in a basketball team. You know, same thing with Kyrie Irving. Like, if you're being a dick, like, it's okay to say, hey, that guy's being a dick. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's shut it down chic. The idea that uh, you have to uh, just immediately make some sort of radical step to preserve your uh, value. And I, what I despise about it is that it's just so binary. The idea that like, oh, of course, Zion Williamson should never play a second of college basketball again. He's a fool not to. Well, absolutely, Zion Williamson should look after himself and he should put his financial interests and his future ahead of anything else. Certainly not Duke University, anybody else in the, uh, in the student population. But I'd really like to see him play in the tournament. Yeah. Is that wrong? Can I want both of those things? Can I want Anthony Davis to be happy and play in a basketball community that he wants to play in, but also want to see him finish out the season for the Pelicans? I mean, it makes a lot of sense to shut LeBron down for the rest of the year, but what about the people who have tickets, who have purchased tickets months in advance to go see a Laker game? You know, we have to think of those interests. Is it wrong to think of those? Yeah, and sometimes there's no 100% right answer. I think I think there's nuance to stuff. And it's okay to admit that there's nuance to stuff. The, it's okay the, to admit two things are right too. I just think that that's or that the, two things are wrong. Like the jazz yeah. fan who who uh, said whatever he said to Westbrook and got Westbrook all upset, whatever the exact wording was, was obviously completely out of line. And Westbrook was out of line too with with what he said back. And I'm he can say that I I would handle it exactly the same way. I think that's crazy to say I would have handled it exactly the same way to say that. You're going to fuck up you and, and your wife too? Like, you shouldn't say that. Sorry. We, we don't have to uh, apologize for that. Like, Westbrook should not say that, period. Yeah. I happened to watch First Take that morning after that happened, which was a lively edition of First Take. But they, I think they actually got to that point. They got to both are wrong here. Good. Uh, they were mainly focused on the fan, but they also said you can't threaten somebody and you can't threaten his wife. Like the fan did. video was kind of amazing because as the more that guy talked, he sounded like someone describing like a UFO encounter. <laughs> like it just got less and less believable with every sentence. It was amazing. Well, and then his tweets started disappearing and then his oh, account God. got deleted. And, <laughs> and, you know, part of the reaction when you see a story like that is you just immediately transfer it to 
the larger picture of, oh God, I hope Trump doesn't tweet about this tomorrow at seven in the morning. For and, sure. And yeah. it really did seem like that was in play for a little while. But um, yeah, I think this is a really weird time specifically for basketball coverage. I think football seems to be where where it was for the most part. We still have our information guys and people breaking down stories and writing about teams. But in the basketball, the the way these athletes now, J- Jason a few months ago on this said, was talking about the parallels of celebrity journalism and Vanity Fair and Vogue magazine compared to how these basketball guys are doing it. And, you know, you can kind of tell when they want to get the right narrative out they, they all run the same playbook, right? They'll go to a certain person that they know will give them the kind of interview they want. They might go on a podcast. They might come on a podcast like this if they feel like, hey, I want to show somebody I'm a thoughtful guy. I want to, you know, shoot the shit for an hour. And or I'm prove, funny. Or- yeah, that I have a sense that there's more to me than just basketball. Um, but what's interesting, maybe I'm just older and I think about this stuff more, but it is funny to, I'm always looking at what are the motivations? Why is this person doing this? And I yeah. feel like it's more transparent than ever what some of these motivations are. What do you see, Brian? Can I ask a related question? Yeah. Do we really believe NBA players are less happy now than they were 10, 20 years ago? This is a theme you've been hitting with Priscilla. You talked about it with Adam. Well, it was Adam was well, the Bill first one that talked it. about it. Yeah. yeah I, well, I feel like Adam started it. Because yeah. I, when I was listening to that interview, yeah, he goes... He was talking about this Jordan documentary that's coming out on ESPN. He goes, you know, boy, those teams, you could just tell there was a certain camaraderie there. And teams, I'm like, wait a second. Yeah, that wasn't Are true. we talking about Michael Jordan? Yeah. Who was the <laughs> biggest asshole to and his teammates? Sam Smith got two books I out of I love Michael Jordan. Yeah. But my God, that guy was an asshole. And if you read the Jordan rules, every single bull basically wanted off the team yeah. during the 91 season. They all <laughs> wanted off. And I'm just like, if they had Twitter accounts... And if they had the power that NBA players had now, wouldn't they have just done the same thing in 91? Are we really less happy? Look, I'm not of that born on Twitter generation. So I do understand there's a difference. The younger people interact with the world and they interact, certainly interact with the online world differently than I did growing up. Yeah. But do we really believe they're less happy now or do we just believe they have more power now that they can say, screw this. I don't want to be dealt. I don't want to be, you know, part of some giant trade. So I'm going to speak up and I'm going to control the exchange as much as I can. They also have too much time on their hands. The season is too long. You know, there's more uh, days in between. And I feel like there's so much dead air now in the NBA season that a lot of these stories take on life because of that. I have a, I have a follow-up to what you just said, but we got to take a quick break. Hey, it might be the best time of year to be a sports fan. Spring training wrapping up, basketball season heating up. College basketball, it is time for the madness. That starts now. Speaking of which, I have a ritual. See who's in, complain about who's out. Go to Yahoo Sports, fill out a free bracket. This year, that best bracket in America is worth $1 million. To win that million, you don't have to be perfect. Just be the best. After all, there are nine quintillion possible combinations. That's a one followed by 18 zeros. You're not going to have a perfect bracket. You might have the closest best bracket, though. Somebody has to win. Might as well be you. If you want to see some of America's most interesting ways to fill a bracket out, here's what you do. You check out Best Bracket Millionaire at Yahoo Sports. There's no wrong way to fill one out except for not filling one out at all. Best Bracket Millionaire. Go to Yahoo Sports, sign up, enter to win. All you have to do is get ready for brackets coming out on Sunday. It's free. You don't have to do it anyway. You don't have anything to lose. You just have a million dollars to possibly win. 
All right. Um, off of what you just said, the answer is basketball players have always been unhappy. Yes. And everybody's been, unhappy. There's been books written. <laughs> Journalists are unhappy. Yeah, yeah. There's what? been books written every single decade about unhappy basketball teams with copious amounts of evidence that there was no, there's been no nirvana in the past where it was like, man, uh, if it was only like 93, we were all so <laughs> happy that year. If you read breaks, I just reread breaks of the game. And that entire book is about an unhappy basketball team in a league that isn't doing that well. But then there's, you know, there's a whole section about how the Seattle Sonics are really unhappy. They just won the title. Now Dennis Johnson's making everyone miserable. And there's anecdotes about that. And then there's an anecdote about how unhappy everybody was to play with Kareem for years. And it's just, this is what the league is. You put 12 dudes together. Only five of them can play. They're all making varying amounts of money. And it's going to be really tough to catch everybody, you know, on the right level of happiness. And when you see it, when you see the team that is happy, it's usually a team like Sacramento or Brooklyn that's younger. The money hasn't really come in yet, but yeah. I bring the, I bring this up because I think it comes around to what we're talking about with transactions. Yeah. When we went into transactions world as a, as, as a sports writing society, we started talking about these guys differently. Yeah. We started talking yeah. about them as salary dumps. And throw-ins <laughs> and expiring, am- expiring contracts and amnesties. Yeah. And they stopped becoming basketball players to a certain extent. They've just, a lot of them became pieces. like monopoly chips you push around the board. Pieces. And, People literally say pieces. And when I do, when I do see these guys talk, speaking up, I do wonder, it's like, would I want to be talked about that way by everybody? Like that everybody's a GM and the way they think of me is this thing that's going to fit in or not. And if, as soon as you don't like it, you just dump it. And I'm like, if I'm going to be dumped in 10 seconds because there's some deal that's better, if camaraderie and teammateship, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I react to that and be like, if Bill's like, you know, Curtis, we love Curtis, great guy, you know, great, good writer. But, you know, we have this trade with Yahoo where he's a great throw and he makes the salaries match. I'd be like, fuck you. I don't want right. to go. I don't, don't want to go there. No, I, and, my, my answer would be, we're not discussing Curtis. <laughs> if Wojnarowski called me, it's not true. But Curtis you know what I mean? I just don't think I would want to be talked about like that. Well, and that's how everybody, especially like you look at the young guys in the Lakers and we have now, you know, I've heard this, other people have heard this, people have reported it. Like that profoundly affected those guys when yeah. the Davis thing happened because it was Rich Paul telling Wojnarowski and Rich Paul was one of LeBron's best friends and it wasn't hard to connect the dots. So yeah. I think this has been... You know, I think it's affected the Celtics. Tatum has been thrown into every Anthony Davis deal, even though they're not even allowed to trade for Anthony Davis. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it's definitely affected, uh, you know, the Golden State, like the future of that team. But there's a good example of, I forgot about this, but when we did the sports rewatchables, when Harrison Barnes was on that 2016 team and the Durant stuff had started. And in the OKC game that we did, he played okay. But in the finals, he really fell apart. And I will think I have to think part of that had to do with the fact that he knew like if he didn't play well, they might not want to keep him. Mm-hmm. It's just an interesting dynamic that's not really uh, that I don't feel like is that old. Well, we're also talking about to bring it back to the beginning that 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 this is metabolic rate, right? Like the sports media metabolic rate is faster than ever. Like the, you said something at the top about how something would happen and you would wait a couple of days because you can't wait to hear what Dan Jenkins or read what Dan Jenkins said about the Masters or said about uh, Michigan, Ohio State. And 
that's gone, that whole notion, because everything has to be instantly processed, not just in terms of, you know, the person sitting at home watching the game uh, immediately commenting it, but the athlete themselves going into the locker room at halftime sometimes and seeing their performance evaluated or their job status evaluated on a day-to-day basis, not just by professionals, but everybody. Everybody has a voice now. And there's really not, in the digital world, there's not a great deal of differentiation between sources. And I think it just makes people crazy. I mean, this is being studied now. What Adam Silver is talking to you about at Sloan is a condition that is not, you know, uh, specific to NBA superstars. It is far and wide, and it has a lot to do with the idea of just people being, A, isolated, but also just you know, feeling overwhelmed and feeling that they just do not have a life apart from that digital existence. I I do agree with what Bill said earlier about we've now overcorrected a lot in sports writing. 70s, 80s, 90s, there was a lot of finger-wagging old man sports writing going on about players. Athletes are ruining this for us. And they're all, and you're selfish. (laughs) If it wasn't for the athletes, sports would be so much more fun. You're selfish to want a lot of money because you're one of the most famous people in the world. How dare you? How dare you brag about your last contract? (laughs) And I think it's almost totally to the good that we corrected a lot of that because it, it, it was bad. You look up a lot of columns. They don't, they don't, they don't play well today from that. Just a lot of those are just insane. The late nineties are the last so that was 20 years ago. If you go back and read a lot of the basketball stuff back then, it's it's borderline racist. It's like, look at what are these black guys doing is the underlying theme of a lot of the pieces. Why why can't these guys be grateful for the money they've had? Absolutely. It's really unseemly. But I do think you can be so sympathetic to want to understand the player that you do get to a point where you're like, well, what if that guy's just the problem? What if he's a dick? That's okay to say. I saw Andy McCullough, Cubs baseball at the LA Times, say this. He's like, when did we get to the point where we just can't call a player out anymore? And to yeah. your LeBron point, it's really funny because the one of the few people I saw just dig it in on that was Bill Plaschke at the LA Times. He's just being a columnist like a columnist has been for 100-ish years. Yeah. And he's like... Wait, I, I'm not feeling any sympathy to LeBron. I'm not feeling sympathy to the Rich Paul LeBron entertainment experience. He's screwing up the Lakers. And so I'm going to write repeatedly that he screwed up the Lakers. And this is a big disappointment. Yeah. Well, this will, it'll be interesting with as this goes with the Kobe fans, too, because there's that whole Kobe fan faction that oh. really resents this LeBron <laughs> thing. And yeah. I heard, I can't take credit for this. I heard it somewhere else. But when LeBron passes Kobe for points, and some, I can't remember who said this. Somebody was like, he's going to have to make sure he does it on the road. <laughs> and I was thinking like, that's absurd. And then I'm thinking like, he probably will make sure he does it on the road. I don't know if you want to do that, uh, that in LA, but it's, you know, the buddy, buddy aspect of this stuff. And look, I had Duran on six podcasts, you know, it's it's not like I'm, the ringer has been guilty of some of this stuff too, but I, one of the reasons I had him on, because I was so interested by how candid he was being about everything. It was like just this resource. It was like, I don't know when this is going to end. I want, <laughs> And by that last one, I felt like he had started to kind of close the fountain. Mm-hmm. You know, he was much more, if you go back and listen to like the, the mailbag podcast we did, he's just letting it fly. He doesn't give a shit. And by the sixth one now with this next thing looming and all this stuff, I think he has to be a lot more careful. But um, in general... I wonder, like, what what if the art test melee happened right now? Oh. How would it be covered compared to how it was covered in two thousand four? Because 
think about the Artest family, right? Fight, settles down. Guy throws a beer at Artest, hits Artest with the beer, and Artest goes in the stands. And our reaction was, I can't believe he did that. Why did he go in the stands? Now I feel like people would be madder that the guy threw the beer at him. Yes. Right? Am I crazy? Absolutely. What do I, you think, Jason? Well, first of all, just think of the way it's processed because it would be processed in real time. The idea that you had to wait for SportsCenter or the next morning to see a clip of it on television. True. I mean, you just get it immediately. Uh, I mean, the Westbrook thing was fascinating uh, just as sort of a similar example. I mean, that was not a similar situation at all, but that uh, clip of Westbrook was released before we knew anything about the fan and what the fan said. You know, yep. that sort of thing went around as like, what the heck is Westbrook doing? And then later it, we find out that the fan was acting contemptibly too. And and I just think that, uh, you know, everything will just happen so much more instantaneously and it'll be as toxic as you can imagine. I don't think it's going to be some sort of like, it would be some sort of like, more progressive reaction to it. I think that it would just be as ugly as ever and you'd be watching it all just unfurl immediately. I, 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 I sort of disagree. I think we would, I think what you're saying is right. We would immediately, I think the reflect, the reflex for a lot of sports media now would be what made the player do that? What did the person say? And Let's at least put the, ourselves in the player's shoes. Yeah. Um, if you, did you watch Shut Up and Dribble documentary? I did. So remember that little part of that where Bob Costas is confronted because he used the word thugs around that incident? I mean, imagine the first sports writer, sports media person who used the word thug in 2019 to describe a player to that. The person well. would be dead. Wouldn't go Toast. Well, well I remember the, stu I, the, right. studio, the studio that night criticized the fans. Remember right after the Artest Melee happened, the guys who were in the Bristol studio were like, I can't believe the fans did that. And those guys took heat the next day. Like, why are you blaming the fans? But now I think the guys would say that in the studio. But also, like, you know, just to go back to a, a basic element of this, I just feel like what we describe as the media now, it's not like people sit around and wait for, like, the five pashas of, like, mainstream sports journalism to weigh in on something. I feel like what the players think of as the media is everybody with Twitter accounts, everybody on Instagram. It's everybody. Everybody yeah. has a say in all this. And the, the sort of, like instant stream of invective and that is as ugly and toxic and racist and brutal as anything you can imagine from any generation now today in 2019 i don't think that players look at it like now you know nowadays saying well you know i you know saw the rotten tomatoes ratings of sports writers and this is what they thought about <laughs> you know what happened in in, in 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 the mouse of the palace i think the reaction would be really really ugly well I, we should mention that they don't have to read this stuff. I think there's a difference between the guys in the 70s, if you're playing basketball and somebody's sitting behind the bench yelling epithets at you for the entire game, you have no choice. You have to hear it. Nowadays, that guy is kicked out in five seconds. Um, and what people, when they talk about- oh, This like, is such a great segue, Bill. I can't believe you're just setting it up like this. Thank you. Um, the social media vitriol- is ultimately you 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 can avoid it if you want to. Mm -hmm. it, there is some voluntary, you know. Kevin Durant doesn't have to go in his replies <laughs> and read two thousand people saying <laughs> shitty things about him if he doesn't want to. Right. You know, so I or, don't know. Or if James Dolan does not want to hear someone mm. saying "sell the basketball club," mm. he can have him permanently barred from the premises of Madison Square. Garden. This is a good segue. Let's take a quick break. <laughs> 
this seems like the perfect time to talk about the hit Showtime series, Billions. Starring Emmy Award winners Paul Giamatti and Damien Lewis. Guess what? Everything changes this season. Enemies become allies. Longtime rivals Chuck Rhodes and Bobby Axelrod are forced to work together to claw their way back on top. The scheming and sabotage will leave you guessing as they seek revenge on anyone and everyone who stands in their way. Maybe there's hope for me and Jim Dolan. Don't miss the new season of Billions starting Sunday, March 17th at 9 p.m. To get a free month of Showtime, go to Showtime.com. Enter code BS. This offer is for first-time subscribers only. It expires March 31st. And check out the Recapables, our podcast where we recap TV shows sometimes. We will have a recap podcast of that first episode of Billions on Showtime, March 17th, Sunday night. Yeah, so James Dolan. Um, <laughs> I'm waiting. waiting for this. Yeah, I'm me waiting. too. It's great. Let's it do great. it. Folks, if you want to fast forward, yeah, it's right here. It's so like, what? So Michael K., Let's start there. He gets 45 minutes with James Dolan. <laughs> and a binder. And James Dolan says a bunch of crazy things. Michael K could have definitely nudged on some stuff. And I thought Kid gloved it a little bit, but did a good job of nudging him in the right direction. There were some nudges. There were good nudges. That's a really hard interview to do because you have a crazy person. You want the crazy person to come back another time on the show. <laughs> you, he, you're getting good sound. You're winning with the thing. But on the other hand, you could you could really nudge. And if he had really nudged back, I feel like Dolan would have gone off the rails because he's obviously very close. Um, did you like how we interviewed him, Brian? I did. I also like the way that the words are just spilling out of James Dolan's mouth. Whenever I hear an owner interviewed, you realize we don't hear these guys talk that For often. For a reason. They're, yeah. in, they're in our minds and in our stories all the time. But then you hear him talk and you're like, oh, wow, these people are bonkers. Yeah, really and, crazy. And just the way he was, how fast he was talking. And just, you know, he would kind of like, okay, we get a question out and like half a second later, Dolan would just be, just the words are falling out of it. It was wild. He made up a word. Uh, what word did he make up? I think Jason Concepcion was telling me about it. It was like, stu- it was a cross between stu- stupendous and tremendous, but he used it as a noun. So it was like stumination. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was unclear. It was barely audible. What were you going to say, Jason? Yeah, let's not wimp out here, Bill. Uh, let's go right to it. Um, are you in a conspiracy with Daryl Morey to wow. uh, break apart the New York? Well, Knicks? we think that was the GM, right? Was it? Well, was, yeah, I, I assume he was implying either Ainge or Morey. Ainge, who I've met like three times I went for to, a total. Of eight I went minutes. to Ainge just because <laughs> that's that's the, that's what I thought Dolan would be well, thinking. So if right. it, if. Maury, I, I'm legitimately friends with, I, and I've admitted it. I've talked about it, and it's been a recurring theme for the last 12 years. He's been on this podcast a bunch of times. The funniest thing about what the, were two really, really super funny things. One was that that Daryl Morey would be threatened by free agents, meaning Durant. I would say over anybody else going to the Knicks. Daryl Morey would drive Durant to the airport if he left the Warriors to go to the Knicks. I mean, they, they, literally the greatest thing that could ever happen to the Rockets is Durant leaving the Warriors. So that was funny. Um, and then the, the part about, um, you know, like they, like there's this conspiracy to destabilize the Knicks. All of these people are coming together and trying to make it seem like they're not stable. It's like, dude, you've already done that. You've done that for 20 years. You were the model franchise of dysfunction and destabilization. I don't have to do anything. So that's the second. And then the third part um, is just like, as a Celtic fan, I hope he owns the team until 2080. 
I don't want him to sell the team. <laughs> I want him to keep it. Please, you're terrible at this. So, so anyway. just to clarify, you're saying no, you're not in a conspiracy with Danny Ainge and Daryl Morey. <laughs> hey, it was a non-denial denial. <laughs> I mean, what is it like to be, you know, uh, the recipient of a of a major fourth wall break like that? Like when you heard that Dolan was calling you out, what did you think? Well, this is this was especially funny because I played nine holes of golf that day. And I just did, I turned my phone off because I want, if I get the phone, I get distracted. Mm. And I got off the course and, you know, you turn your phone back on. And especially when you, we, we have 92 people that work for us. So anytime I turn the phone off after two hours, there's that split second where you're just like, man, I hope nothing happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and whether nothing happened could be something that was somebody that works with us or some sports story or just something awful. And this was the combo of the Odell trade and Dolan. <laughs> and it was just like, I just had all these texts and I'm like, what has happened? And then Dolan and people are just texting me, Dolan exclamation point. And I'm like, what did he kill somebody? What happened? And then I realized what it was. And then it was just so funny. Like I was just immediately amused and, and so happy. It's like, really? Plus like to deny that he was courting offers is insane because so many people have the same story about this, like in the rich guy circles, because they were all mobilizing to try to put a bid for it. Well, if you look at the interview, you know, he does these very choreographed interviews and he did one with ESPN a couple of months ago where he talked at length about, you know, the team and uh, his ambitions and plans for the team yeah. and why the Knicks are different than the Rangers. And he said a couple of things that seem to me to be very, very much flagging, you know, make me an offer, folks. One was the fact that um, <laughs> he named know, a price. <laughs> he named a price. <laughs> but secondly, he talked about, you know, how. Uh, you know, and, and we all agree that sort of the business of the NBA is uh, franchise valuation, right? Well, the Knicks are the most valuable franchise in the NBA, shockingly, but they are because of where they are, where they are and so on. And he's saying like, look, they, they have single digit uh, increases now. This is not a business where I'm going to somehow, you know, my, my team is going to be 10 years from now is going to be worth twice as much as it is now. I don't see it having that kind of thing. So that says, if you're talking about anything, that that becomes an opportunity for a seller to sell. Um, those seem to be real indicators that, you know, if he was not explicitly, you know, putting the team on the market, that he would at least listen to a very substantial offer. But I think the big thing with the Knicks as a as an offer uh, is that it's just a big price. That's a very big price. It's it's not Steve Ballmer two billion for the Clippers. It's a it's a much more expensive endeavor, and there aren't that many people who can pony up for that. I've talked to a few people about this, and. What's changed about how these how these uh, franchise prices have just gone through the roof? You know, when you think about like what the Philadelphia 76ers were for sale, and this was this decade, and I think they went for like 260, and some of it was dead assumption. And at that point, it's pretty easy to put together a group of rich guys. You borrow some money. This guy puts in 30. This guy puts in 100. This guy puts in 15, and you're good to go. And in this case, like, I think a realistic price for this Knicks team is like, let's say 3.7 billion, right? They're probably worth two and a half. And then there's the rich guy tax of if I own the Knicks, I become the hot shit in New York. That's worth like another billion point two. Um, the problem is it's really hard to cut a check for $3.7 billion. Like there's only <laughs> like two dozen Americans who could do that, who probably care about sports. So if you're, if you're saying like, I don't know, 1.5 billion or something like that. You still have to, that would be the majority interest. You would still have to find all this other money 
and the word is out in the street now with minority owners. It sucks. Yeah. You're putting in all this like money to- and you're basically just getting courtside tickets and that's it. You have no say in anything. <laughs> it blows. Right. Right. Yeah. How would you like to put in $1.2 billion and get parking slot number two? You know, like that just is a, uh, it's a big ask. I had somebody tell me, and I don't think I can credit them, but it was a great idea. I'll credit them in the next pod if they say it's okay. That the way to do this, to buy an expensive team would be like, let's say it's, let's say the Knicks are three and a half billion. You put in 1.5 billion and you're the controlling owner, take the other 2 billion and you make it public. Mm. You go Green Bay Packers basically, and you just sell the interest and now everybody owns that other part. And now you're still the majority. I don't totally understand the economics of that, but I, I thought that was a really interesting idea. So somebody buys it and they say, that other two billion, I want the Knicks fans to own it with me. Half the Knicks is like a public company. Yeah, or like the Lakers or whoever it is, or like the the Pittsburgh Steelers, whoever it is. It's like, come on in with me. We'll own this (laughs) together. Let's save the Knicks together. And they do it that way. I thought that was kind of interesting. I was going through the list of billionaires who who could cut this check. So Bezos is one of them. They would have to like sports is the thing. Stan, Stan Kroenke has a basketball team, so he's not He's him. got three teams. Are there other Walton heirs that could, <laughs> Sam Walton heirs that could step up to the plate? Like Michael Jordan got the Bobcats, like Bob Johnson sold them. He might be the only person who's lost money on an NBA team in the last 30 years. Incredible. And Jordan probably put in a hundred million of his own money and that's it. Like he didn't have, when these guys like LeBron talk about, I'm going to own an NBA team someday, it's like. You might be part of an ownership group. Like you're not gonna the amount of money it's gonna take to own an NBA team. I don't see it. Bill, do you worry at all that, you know, James Dolan has kind of doubled down here and is gonna be so agitated at you that were someone to come to him with a check for three point seven or five billion dollars, that he would stare at it and say, like, if I take this. I have to say that Bill Simmons was right. No, about I, I don't me. think he. I don't think he cares about I'm me as so much. I'm so mad at Bill Simmons that I'm no. just going to tear this check up. I don't think I have anything to do with it, but I will say this: you might have given Knicks fans another 20 years no, of James Dolan. If, you, believe me, that 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 I'm as unhappy as Knicks fans would be about that scenario. <laughs> I do think there there's a stubbornness with him that is completely irrational that we saw with the Isaiah Thomas thing, and this is something. That is a recurring theme in Dolan's life of like, you're not going to bully me into doing blank. And with the Isaiah thing, it was like clear. The move was like, you got to get rid of this guy. What are you doing? And at some point he dug his heels in. He was like, you're not going to tell me to get rid of this guy. I'll do whatever I want. I'm James Dolan. Don't tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And that feels like that's now happening with, you're not going to bully me into selling. You can bring your signs to, I'll kick you out. This is is there another place. is there another owner in the NBA or sports in general who would have done the same thing? Can you think of anybody who would have like had someone call, "Hey, sell the team," and they would have had their you know goons remove them from the uh, arena? I think Robert Sarver would do that. The Suns owner, <laughs> he's basically James Dolan with worse PR, or the, or like he doesn't have the profile that James Dolan does, but he's just as bad. That seems like a mess. Um, Jimmy Haslam, are we totally Jimmy convinced Haslam he wouldn't could do it? Actually, do it. Yeah. What's weird is everything. Every time Dolan gives one of these interviews, it's clear that it really annoys him that the fans have so much say and sway with all this, and it, it's really like a, how dare you? How dare you, people? 
this is my team. This isn't your team. It's my team. How dare you? Well, what it's makes weird. me weird? What makes me crazy about it is it's just it's so, so not New York. I mean, thin skin, man. Like that's supposed to be something you shed the minute you walk into the city. You're not supposed to be the kind of person who has rabbit ears for criticism. I mean, the whole True. it's it's a fundamental right of living in this town that you can. Say what you think, and we're good tomorrow. And the idea that someone is banning people permanently, you know, for petty commentary is is crazy. I don't know. Trump's from New York, right? There's a there's a model for thin skinned and banned the media. Who is this guy? This did Who? feel very Trumpish. Mm -hmm. This this whole thing, but yeah, it is. You know, well, first of all, start here. He inherited the team. I think we forget this over and over again with sports owners is you have the the owners that are usually the best owners and there are a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, they're usually self-made people that are just incredible businessmen and are billionaires for a reason. And then they eventually turn their attention to this sports thing and they're like, now I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to make this successful. When somebody has been handed a team it's either because their husband died, like the New Orleans Pelicans lady, Gail Benson, or their dad died, or their dad got super old and gave them the team. This doesn't mean that you have credentials to run the team. Jeannie Buss, who you know has been in the business world for a while, I'm not sure that means she should own the Lakers. Her dad did. Her dad did a great job. She probably learned some stuff. We have no evidence she should be a successful owner. We have no evidence James Dolan should be an owner. Just kind of funny. There's no other world. Like when my son turns 25, he's not going to take over the ringer. <laughs> like, okay, guys. Wow. Is that I'm a news break? Wow. Okay. Right. Here's Ben Simmons. He has some ideas about how oh. to incorporate Fortnite into our, uh, into our coverage. Fantasy is going to go out and buy a car. All right. Way to go. <laughs> But we do have the second, the root for the second generation scenario, which is you know you're kind of in that zone with Jonathan Kraft right now. If I'm not, <laughs> if I'm not wrong, I've, yeah, I found myself in the Stephen Jones. You know, there's a Stephen Jones faction with the Cowboys. There's a right what way if to self-made guy. Isn't it time for the self-made guy? Too? You know, you might be onto something, Curtis. The Simmons versus Dolan might just be a ruse to like take attention away from the whole Kraft thing. I think that's uh, like. Come on. <laughs> He's an old, old widow. Come on. <laughs> uh, well, I will say the, the one way to do it, and this has had mixed success, but I do respect when people at least do it, is Jonathan Kraft really did try to go up the ladder like as a real business person and have different experiences. I think Jeannie did to some degree. Um, Kirk Lacob on the Warriors, who really since he got out of college and his dad took the team, has tried to work his way up the front office as a real basketball guy and really put the time in. And... I don't know. I like when people do that. I, I can't imagine James Dolan kind of put the time in as a, as a potential owner. This is like Don Graham at the Washington Post. I'm going to be a reporter and I'm going to be a sub editor and I'm going to learn the business thing exactly. and then all the way up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the respectful air. Or what's the, the, the New York mark. Times publisher? I met that guy recently. Uh, he just AG. Salzberger. Yeah. And they, the Salzbergers, <laughs> they, you know, they operate almost like a monarchy and they, but they try to keep the times of the family, but whoever is the next person up, they have to start at the bottom and work their way up and experience all these different parts of the newspaper before they're ready to do it. It's smart. Uh, James Dolan, that has not happened. <laughs> but he's the funniest thing with, with all of this is that he seems to think he's a good owner. 
And yes. it's like, yes. I, I don't interfere with my guys. I've I let, given you everything you've wanted. Yeah, I've yeah. spent money. But he doesn't realize that hiring people is part of this. And if you're absolutely a one out of 10 F minus at hiring people, that means you're a bad owner. Does anybody think they're a bad owner? Ever? Is Mar did Marge Schott think she was a bad owner? I think older owners think they were Marge bad owners. Schott. I think they acknowledge it as they get deeper into the thing. I think they understand that they you know, were rash and made bad call. I think that if, uh, any sort of wise owner would be hit, you know, aware, alert to that. Maybe you think, yeah. I think, I think, I think you, they may not say it though. I think you're in such denial at some point. You you're just trying to convince yourself whatever your reality is. Like, I do gave you, think you Phil Jackson. You asked for Phil Jackson. I gave you sixty million dollars worth of that guy. You've always been a success in business, and it's hard for you to admit. And you're probably making money off your terrible basketball team. Right, Dolan certainly is. So you you convince yourself. Well, of course, I'm a good owner. He hasn't the been other, a bad Rangers owner, apparently. Because yeah. he's, hi he's hired a little better on that side. Yeah. Another incredibly the, the overrated other move, franchise. Of course, is for everybody, everybody in the sort of greater New York area to become massive fans of the JD Straight Shot band and just to buy so many records and to stream so many songs that they become such a global phenomenon that they are on world tour constantly, hmm. like the dead or something. And, <laughs> you know, he's not able to attend to the team because it maybe just falls out of interest with it because he is a full, a full on rock star. I mean, well, that's the Irving Azov connection, is it right? Yeah, and and by the way, those guys are incredibly successful on the music side. So it's not like he is a, he's not a bozo as a businessman. He just doesn't seem to understand that owning a sports team is different than owning, you know, uh, the, the MSG music side of things or whatever else they have. It's easy to be not a bozo when you inherit a lot of stuff. True. He could he fix do, the subways. Don't, don't do anything. You're not yeah, a bozo. James Dillon, James Dillon could literally fix the New York City subway and people would be like, sell the dicks! Right. <laughs> like, it, just, it just overwhelms everything. And I agree. Yeah, there are business enterprises that he's involved in that are wildly successful. But well, this new thing, thing just outweighs everything. This thing now, this showdown with this lawsuit with Steve Ballmer, it's basically Dolan and Azoff against Steve Ballmer who wants to build a basketball arena right next to the new Rams arena that's coming out. And right. they're trying to block it. And they're either trying to block it because they really don't want it to happen because they want the forum to be the exclusive place that anyone would hear music there, or they want to get cut into it. Mm -hmm. Now they're messing with somebody who has made a ton of money in his own time, who is extreme as just as stubborn as those guys are. And it really has the chance to be one of the, it's like a billion season. It's not a billions episode. This is like season five of billions, <laughs> this conflict with Jeannie Buss getting brought in. Like Axe is the only person missing. That was the incredible part of the story. That the, the, they wanted the Lakers to move back to the forum, back to Inglewood, essentially, to preempt the Clippers. And um, she's calling Balmer balls in the emails, <laughs> B-L-L-Z, like derisively. and making. very billions. And I'm like, how are you putting this stuff in email? You're the owner of the Lakers. You're, you're putting like a like a huge plan in there. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, it, this whole thing this week, because I've been thinking a lot about owners and just what we want from owners. And I actually think the worst kind of owner is what the Celtics had before this latest ownership group where they had the Gastons and they had Paul Gaston's son, who's a legacy kid, who didn't want to spend money, didn't want to Wasn't be accountable Paul for Don's anything. Son? Was it what? Wasn't it Paul was Don's son? It was Paul Gaston. Yeah, it was Don right, Gaston's yeah. son. 
right. didn't want to spend money, didn't want to be accountable for anything. Um, they made decisions that made the team worse to save like a million bucks. And it was just like the worst case scenario. Like, I guess if you're going to do silver linings with Dolan, like at least he spends money. Mm-hmm. I guess like at least Phil Jackson, like that came from a decent place. Like this guy's a legend. We'll bring him back to New York. People were excited about that at the time. Um, but I look at somebody like Sarver and I'm like, wow, everything you've done has been. Everything's terrible. Yeah. You've, you've actually, you're hurting. That's a great basketball city. And those fans now actually are starting to not like basketball because of him. That's your, that's probably the worst case. And scenario. as a Cowboys fan, I'm in the, we haven't won anything in 20 years. But Jerry Jones is wildly accountable. He's the most available He's person in the NFL. He's the accountable person we have. He's more available than offensive linemen. He's just, he just like, it's like, here we go. Got an hour? Let's do it. <laughs> Brian, let me ask you a question about Dolan, which is that like, if you were like his media strategist. Oh, yeah. A position we don't know whether or not that exists. I don't think so. I don't think <laughs> so. I think he's answering the, the I think, phone. I think that person just keeps resigning but, a day into the job. <laughs> right. It's like, a, yeah. Uh, what is the move? I mean, I think the move is, you know, total isolation and never do an interview ever again. But uh, if in lieu of that, what would be the strategy for polishing up his image? I don't actually know if the interviews heard him. Do we think they actually heard him at this point? I, don't, I He's think just Trump, such a toxic asset. I think there's no, there's no, there's no downside. It's like Trump. They, they, at this point, he can say anything. It's not going to change anything. I mean, you're in, you're in the city with, with back pages that just want to tear you apart every single day. I do feel like the sell the team thing is going to get momentum, in in a way that it's it's been, and Jason probably has the best feel for this out of anyone because he's in New York. But it's been percolating for a few years now. And it feels like it's going to hit some sort of tipping point if they don't get these guys this summer. That's the what if, problem is if Katie that. doesn't come yeah. and Kyrie yes. doesn't come, and now it's like, hey, we got Jimmy Butler. <laughs> that that and hey, we spent six years tanking for Jimmy Butler and the fourth pick in the draft. Here's Cam Reddish and Jimmy Butler, everybody. <laughs> we did it. It's not going to go well. So, I and mean, the Mavericks win the championship. That'd now, be bad. Now, the, conspiracy theory, you could argue, like, he's definitely, like, he's got a little swagger these days, old Jimmy D, right? He's like, I'm the owner of the Knicks. This is great. People are JD. Maybe he knows he's getting KD, and that's why he's feeling himself a little bit. That thought occurs. That thought has mm. definitely occurred. He's he's acting a little irrational confidence, Deanne waiters with some of, some of the <laughs> proclamations, which makes me wonder. I mean, this is a team that the best free agent they've signed in the last 15 years was Omar Stoudemire who had no knee cartilage left and they paid a hundred million dollars to him. So it's, it's not like they've free agents have been, you know, batting the Knicks away. It's tampering irrational confidence. Yeah. It's exactly what it is. Who is your favorite crazy owner of all time? Just out of curiosity. Oh, from our, from our era. Could be anybody, anybody God. since you've been alive. God, my favorite crazy owner. Um, I'm, Pretty I'm take- hard to top Bob Ursay. Oh, wow. Because he was on Twitter. <laughs> no, that's Jim Ursay. That's Jim. Oh, Jim. Oh, Bob is the moving trucks. I thought we were talking about Jim. Jim Jim was sadder, though. Bob Ursay was pretty good. Yeah, Jim's got, like, some major issues. Yeah, Don Carter, the Mavericks, when I was growing up, 
Speaking of the Jordan rules, there's this great scene where he's, is, I can't remember who he's trying to sign off the bulls, but he has this whole speech about, do you believe in God and, and, and all this stuff when he's trying to sign him to a free agent contract. It's like, it's like your interview with the televangelist before you get the big free agent deal. Yeah. And he wore a cowboy hat at uh, courtside. He was, That's I don't know. That's a good one. Yeah. He was, he was a, he was a good one. That's kind of old think, school NBA. You know, Marge. Stein, well, Marge, That's it was own. such a tough ending. <laughs> It's, um, it's a long couple of years. I mean, think about it. 30 years ago, people being horrified by something somebody said. Can you imagine Marge in 2019? I feel like the whole country would shut down for Incredible. a week as we regrouped. I Steinbrenner, I actually think, has become underrated. Yeah, we forgot. For the amount of media that he generated just day after day after day. But I think the lost guy for this is Charlie O'Finley, the mm. A's guy from the 70s. And I think there's one good book about them, but- the amount of crazy shit that guy did and just how off his rocker he was culminating in. And they won. And they won. They won all these World Series. But yeah. then he guts the team in this just batshit way. He just basically <laughs> sells all his players in 1976. <laughs> it would be like if Dolan just sold Porzingis for $50 million, but then also sold Kevin Knox and sold their lottery pick mm -hmm. and got a hundred million dollars and was just like, fuck you. <laughs> That's basically Charlie O'Finley. Uh, so I love that was, I think he's my sleeper. I agree with you about Steinbrenner. We completely, people forgot the Dave Winfield like, stuff. I yeah. mean, it's, it's just, imagine if that happened today. Bill, where would you put uh, Victor Kayam? Oh, that was brief. <laughs> that was bad, brief, but bad. Yeah, if we did like a bad behavior by owners podcast, the Victor Kayam episode would be strong. If you were played by Phil Hartman on an episode of Saturday Night Live, that's true. That's you're a in bad the notorious time. owners. That's club. so. How many owners have been played by an owner by an SNL character? Only mm -hmm. a couple. Has Jerry Jones been an SNL character? I don't think he so. Should be. He should have been. Hey, huh? SNL, make Jerry Jones a character. <laughs> Steinbrenner definitely. Victor Kayam. Steinbrenner hosted Mark SNL? Mark Cuban, I feel like, has been made fun Steinbrenner of. Steinbrenner on SNL? Steinbrenner hosted. Hosted. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. That is amazing. Steinbrenner hosted. I feel Steinbrenner is kind of a missing link in terms of when people talk about the president, they talk about his style and his sort of like, you know, just the, just the way he works. I, I, I feel like... Trump was very much inspired and awestruck by George Steinbrenner. No question. And, and think of like Trump coming of age in the sort of peak Yankee era of George being maximum George, then being exiled from the sport and then triumphantly returning. I, I, I see all these kinds of parallels there. Very blustery. Do you think Trump would have paid somebody off for bad information about one of his best <laughs> assets and gotten suspended for a year? Because that actually happened. Check out the Dave like, Winfeld story. Yeah. Nuts. It feels in play. Uh, all right, let's take one more break. Let's talk about Squarespace. Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace. They make it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more. Squarespace, the tool for you. Beautiful templates, world-class designers, the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality. Let you sell anything online. Analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything optimized for mobile right out of the box. Nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domains, simple. As you know, you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. They empower millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, restaurants, gyms, you name it. They turn great ideas into something real. You can do that too. Head to squarespace.com slash BS for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Use the offer code BS 
to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com slash BS, offer code BS. Okay, so we're going to move to another great story, the uh, the college cheating scandal that included Lori Laughlin, Lauf- <laughs> a.k.a. Becky, and Felicity Huffman. And seems like it has the potential to be a domino that bleeds into college sports for like the next 10 years. I read the Pat Forty, Dan Wetzel piece yesterday about there's two names in that story that is are like two famous behind the scenes college basketball people. And I just wonder if this is the start of seven years of stories. <laughs> we we took care of the uh, press box overwork Twitter joke of the week in like five seconds with the Aunt Becky and wake up San Francisco jokes from Full yeah. House, which were really epic. You're in big yeah. trouble, mister, with yeah. uh, Mary Kay and Ashley Olsen wagging their yeah. the finger. Uh, I had two absolutely favorite details from the USC part of this. Yeah. Number one was one of the fake women's basketball players that was signed. She, of course, was not playing basketball for USC. And somebody came up and said, what's wrong? Why isn't she on the team? Thinking this is a real legit basketball player. And, it was, and the, the excuse the... AD came up with was, oh, she has plantar fasciitis. <laughs> so as a society, we've been to, oh, that's that thing Tim Duncan had. No, no question. I got yeah. no more questions. Can't we fuck just, with that. Plantar fasciitis, we just assume like that's yeah. it. That personal part. Could be three years. That was amazing. And the second one is they actually got a fake football recruit was involved. Yeah. And I was thinking like, this is amazing because college football fans know who all these guys are. They don't, there are no like mystery football recruits. They have video, they just everything. And then I found out, oh, it was a kicker. And that's like the one black hole of Mm. college football recruiting media. Yeah. Because you get these guys and it's like, oh, he was nine of 15 in his high school career, but he hit a 50 yard and he was great at a camp. And so you're like, great, sounds great. It's going to be the next, next great kicker at my school. But that's how they snuck it in. Those are my two. Those are my right. two that I love. It's one right. of the last positions where you have these kind of like natural, like, you know, finds like, oh, you know, he played Aussie rules football and <laughs> we found him at a circus and like all this kind of stuff. And like, yeah, he's not a uh, known quantity in the same way that a quarterback was. Wasn't the kid also from a school that didn't have a high school football team? There was, was that. And somebody tried to get into a sport that USC didn't have, Blues Lacrosse. Yeah. And they're like, well, they don't actually have lacrosse. We're going to have to pick another fake sport for you. <laughs> USC Lacrosse. So, you know, my question here is like, you know, we have some children among us. Bill has the ones that are closest to uh, college, but still a ways away. This feels like a story that has all kinds of elements of wealth and privilege, but also just super. 2019 crazy parenting. And yeah. do you see parallels here between the lengths to which parents will go to get a kid into school and the kinds of stuff you observe in, you know, youth sports and just parents and travel teams and all the nuttiness there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next segment. I just dealt with it. My daughter was applying to schools here for ninth grade and, and, you know, there's only so many spots and so many schools and, as the story, this happened after we found out where everybody was going. And I was thinking this story, I'm sure this must have happened with at least one of the schools, right? As a parent promising, well, if you let her in, I'll I'll do this. Got sure. me thinking, though, I should start doing this with Ringer internships, right? Oh. You know, a lot of people want to work here now. We're the greatest website in the world. Not a lot of spots. We don't have a lot of internships. I... So I you think want a we side door to the ringer. Just, just just random parents coming in. We're willing to be bribed here at the ringer. In we get an internship. Some, poor Kyle. Like, hey Kyle, uh, you have an intern now. Uh, <laughs> his name's Jack. 
He's he's got uh, ADD, but uh, and he doesn't know anything about sports. But he's going to be your new intern. Never produced a podcast. <laughs> he's just His high school didn't have a podcasting. He's uh, breaking department. microphones as he's setting them up. It's like no, 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 we can't touch Jack. He's here. Oh. But uh, no, it's it's this is all part of the same beast. As parents becoming competitive with other parents and wanting the best for their kids to a point that. And also wanting to impress people in their lives, right? Like yeah, the stuff yeah. about like trying to get your kid into Penn because it's an Ivy League school, and now you're paying off people at Penn because you want to tell your kid your your friends that your kid got an Ivy League school. I feel the NCA part of this is just at a complete stalemate. The whole NCA thing, and this goes to Zion, and this goes to everything else. Yeah, we've basically the media has decided that amateurism is fraud and a con and wrong and et cetera, et cetera. But nothing is happening. So it's kind of like every time and nothing some, ever will happen. And so there's sometimes, you know, every time a case comes up, everybody gets really mad. Yeah. And you like you were saying, pointing at the Zion thing, like, oh, finally, we've hit it. This is the moment the dam breaks, but the dam doesn't break. It will never break. And so we're all just kind of there's just nothing to do at this point from yeah. a, just from a how do I write a column perspective? Just nothing's going to happen. You want to be we all want to be there at the moment the dam breaks. That's as a journalist, any dam breaks. Celtics win a title. The amateurism dies baseball goes out of business, whatever it is, but it doesn't happen. And so we just kind of gin up all this energy and then you kind of go, okay, well, never mind. And people seem to be underrating that it's actually really fun to play college basketball. Titus and I talked about this last week on the pod. It's just like, Zion's having a great time. He's at Duke. He's with all these dudes. He's playing in front of a packed house. He's being idolized. He's he's never had any of these experiences before. This isn't a bad thing. And he's going to make a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I think, not to sound like a Wall Street Journal columnist, but I think the market will solve this before the NCAA ever does. I think that what you're going to have happen here is leagues, you know, whether it's G or, you know, somebody else steps in and another sport. Um, These leagues are created and they're content and people will watch them, not in the numbers that they would watch, you know, Hard, you know, high-level professional sports, but they'll watch low-level professional sports because it's young and interesting, and these are people you can follow. And then college sports can go off and be college sports, and you have the regionalism and the excitement and the sort of fan stuff. And I don't, I don't think it's essential to college sports to have the best of the best of the best. I truly don't. I don't think you're like sitting at, you know, a, 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 a national championship and saying I have to see one of the greatest, you know, running backs in the country right now. You well, know, we're. Also, we're not getting the best of the best now. We're getting people that are like unfinished products for a year in basketball. Especially in basketball. In football, it's a little more finished, but it's still. Because you get three years and junior, you're pretty pretty much there. Right. I think what Jason said, I think, is the key point. And I brought this up to Adam. He didn't take it and run with it, which made me feel like that was the one time he got, I don't want to say dodgy, but Mm -hmm. um, I think the G League is what solves all this, at least for basketball. There's no answer for football. But I think if they pour real money into the G League and have a 30-team league that has like a 25 million salary cap and play, they stagger it so that maybe it starts in like July and goes all the way through to like January and then those people, it's a 50-game season and then they can join the big team at the end. There's a way to do this where they can just make money from it. Right. And, and once that way- happens, college is done. Yeah. Not well. No, I mean, I done mean, done as like a place to see Zion Williamson. And and and, and candidly, it's good, better for college to be that. And it's better because you don't have the headaches. You don't have the problem of having to police your top tier talent. You know, from getting income. And it's just ridiculous. But I think that you know what they're frightened of is like, what does that do to the television product of it? If it at all like erodes the audience, 
You know, is the gravy train slowing? And and that's the issue for them. Well, think about this. So I was reading in Breaks of the Game, which is set in 7980, and I'd forgotten this. The CBS has the NBA contract, but then the year before that 7980 season, they go all in on college basketball for the first time. And there's this real fear that they talk about in the book with the NBA people that college basketball is going to surpass us. Wow. And what are we going to do? And and they're showing all these college basketball games. They're tape delaying the NBA games. And this is less than 40 years ago. And now, now we're looking at college basketball going, wow, this could really just be the MLS basically compared to the premier league yeah. uh, of the G league in 10 years. I really think that's conceivable. And I also think you're going to see, and and there's no reason legally this could not happen, that if you're going to create the G League and you're going to create an avenue for uh, young people to not go to college and professionalize, well, you could also do that for people who are in high school. Um, mm. There's no problem. I mean, we have it in soccer. It exists. We have IMG Academy, Academy right? Exactly. Yeah. And I don't think that there's anything you know preventing teams like you will see. Players enter the Houston Rockets system. Players enter the Sacramento Kings system. You know, there's no nothing standing in the way of that legally. Well, Doncic's rise, I think, is a, is a fun example of how this might work someday because he was a pro when he was like 16. As an 18-year-old, when he would have been um, in college playing a 30-game season, he played an 85-game season or something for Real Madrid and was playing against the best pros overseas, and he turned out fine. So... He was making money from age 16 on versus somebody like Zion, who's only making under the table money this year, and then we'll make real money next year. But maybe yeah. that's a solution. I sort of think that I, I agree with Jason in the sense that like if something's called the University of Texas Longhorns football, basketball, I will watch them. If uh, some of these people peel off and go to a pro league, it's still the un- still room for interested. the uniforms. And by the way, as, as NBA tap the brakes guy officially here yeah. at the ringer, um, NCAA tournament and the NCAA is going to be the biggest thing in the world versus the G League. I just want <laughs> just a mild oh, yeah. correction for the for the foreseeable future. Right? I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, let's not I get think, carried away with the G League. Like who? Like no, I'm, ta- I'm no, more talking about. Literally nobody is watching the G League, right? The NCAA tournament is a billion billion dollar. But if the G business. League, yeah. if the G League had your top ten prospects every year, and that basically if they had the top thirty players who were freshmen. Is there going to be a crazy 64 team tournament starting in March with all no, that, everybody's alma maters across the league? I mean, I don't think they can replicate that. I mean, I think it'll be you. bigger. I'm just saying, like, college basketball is gigantic right now. Even though we're peeling off players and they're staying one year, that's but still the thing a is, huge business. Even if you remove the top 30 players, I still feel like college basketball, March Madness, that oh, would yeah. even be more fun. Maybe Holy, maybe oh, it's Holy Cross's chance to, to win it. <laughs> there you go. Right. No, and, and players would stay longer and you develop relationships with them that are, you know, more long-lasting. But, you know, to I'm tapping the brakes right there with you, Brian. But the other thing that's happened is, you know, part of the reason Zion is Zion is that there was this whole sort of backlog of, you know, fan excitement about him going back four or five years uh, is his school kid career. Um, there were videos yeah. and, you know, certainly all that stuff. And that's really new. And I think that that those players getting funneled into some sort of semi-professionalized system or low-level professionalized system, I think, you know, will have more life because of that, because people are more alert than ever of all that stuff. And that that's a whole other media conversation, the sort of the Wild West of, like, high school highlights and all these people, like, commodifying, you know, another set of young people who aren't getting any kind of compensation. Yeah, and that's only going to get worse and worse too. I, I'm fascinated by the MOS, and I think that's a good parallel to what we're talking about here. 
I went to an MLS game. I have LAFC tickets. We went on Sunday and it was really fun. I had an awesome time. There were a couple of good guys on each team that were like world-class guys. And then some other guys who, you know, it would be the equivalent of, I guess, the G League in the, in the NBA. But the point is the experience was still an A-list experience. It's a great stadium. They've created these traditions and fans, all stuff we've talked about on this pod before. And I think, I think college hoops, if you just remove the best 20 players, I still think you still have all of that yeah. multiplied by a hundred because of the college, the loyalty, the coaches who are mm-hmm. really the stars, um, the tournament, the regional stuff, the, re- all, hey, the conferences, yeah. all that yeah. stuff. Like I really, I don't think it would affect it other than you'd be, re- you'd be removing the one thing that people like me really watch college basketball for who don't have a team is who are the best guys this year. And knowing you, you'd still get interested in the second tier prospects. I probably would. I'd be like, oh, that guy's good, good second round pick for somebody. Like, he, he looks be, like a young Kevin Herter. <laughs> he could be a ninth guy for, on a real, on a playoff team. <laughs> uh, let's take one more break. Hey, Allbirds is dedicated to making stylish, comfortable footwear using premium natural materials designed for life's everyday adventures. What are life's everyday adventures, Kyle? Taking the bus. Taking the bus? You need a comfortable shoe. You're walking from the bus stop to the job. You wear the Allbirds when you take the bus. Comfy shoes made from wool. That is the Allbirds wool runners. They look good. They're designed simply no unnecessary logos. They come in a bunch of classic colors, as well as limited edition shades like graphite, moonstone, marble, or the Kyle Bus Edition. They haven't made those yet, but they should. You can wear them to work or to play in the office out of town. Better yet, Allbirds New Zealand Merino wool requires 6% less energy to produce than typical synthetic materials used in shoes. Feel good about wearing them. Allbirds wool is even ZQ certified. What's ZQ certified mean, Kyle? <laughs> Why'd you do that? To me? <laughs> <laughs> Which means it's grown on sustainable farms where they treat the sheep well. Allbirds believes that comfort, style, and sustainability don't have to be mutually exclusive. Head to allbirds.com to get your own very special soft and cozy pair of wool runners. I uh, I did this Skype thing with Jay Adande's Northwestern class today and got one question that I thought would be fun to talk about for 10 minutes. Because I get this question, obviously this is the question I get the most. I'm sure it's the question you guys get the most too. How do I do what you do? Give me some advice. How do I get into this? And one of the things I always say is, if you want to be a writer and you want to write about sports, read, which sounds really stupid and cliched, but it's not because over and over again, I'm shocked by, you know, there's this whole, we have 60, 70 years of great sports books at this point, right? Including some of the all-time classics that have been written in the last 40 plus years. And the three of us have read all of these, sometimes many, many times. And I think when you tell somebody under 25, like, you know, what, give me some advice. And you tell them, like, have you read all the books? And they'll kind of look at you sometimes like, oh, really? I should do that? I should read the books. Um, which, got, which got me thinking, what do you think are the best books to recommend for people? Let's say there's a 17-year-old listening to this right now, or a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old. And you had to tell them five books to go read right now Mm. that will help them understand writing better, journalism better, why we do this for a living, why we love writing, why we care about this shit. What five books would you pick? What jump off your head? And I did not prep you guys for this because I thought it would be better if it was like an authentic off the top of my head. Whew. Yeah. Big subject. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. 
I, as a kid on that shelf and reading it about that age was, was Friday Night Lights for me. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a great book, but it also shows you how you can take something. It's almost like what I was saying about Jenkins earlier and just make people think it's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. Because you just invest so much energy and you write so well about it. Like the whole, to me, the whole myth of Texas high school football uh, now extended with Operation Varsity Blues is created there. It's just, it's just football. Yeah. I grew up going to those games. It's just high school football. High school football is good in California too. But that mythic quality that there's somehow it's, it's more matters. Pro- it's, more. Bad, it's like bigger here. The sun sets differently in Texas. So that's my number one pick. What's yours, Jason? Oh man. I mean, I'll just go from, you know, autobiographical, uh, experience. I, uh, I, at some point, my father, who was not a big sports guy, um, and actually forbade me from reading the sports section. So in the great tradition of kids who turn into things that their parents don't want them to be. Um, but he gave me Roger Angel's The Summer Game and Five Seasons, mm. which is really a funny book, especially Five Seasons when you think about it, because it's just like essays about like baseball games that at the time that I was reading this were already 10 years old. Um, and it was just, you know, it was obviously super literate and it was a way of looking at the game that I had never sort of seen in a sports page, uh, but also just felt, you know, what a great life. I, I feel like, you know, and not to bring it back again to Jenkins, but like the great writers kind of also just took you there and made you feel you were part of it and made you feel you were in on this amazing sort of world and secret. And they weren't just like kind of like conveying facts and information. They were developing a whole world, like in a way the great novelist would. And Angel is as good as it gets, obviously. And I think that was his real secret was he created worlds for you. I mean, he was representing worlds. He wasn't creating anything. These still, were still alive, by the way. And still alive at uh, ninety. Maybe the last one of those that generation. Yeah, uh, I, unbelievable. I, I, and 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 the other one that I would say is Bill Russell's autobiography, mm. um, which is as great a athlete biography autobiography as there is. It was written in his career um, with Taylor and, Branch. Taylor yeah, Branch. And and uh, you know, it's just I mean, for a million different reasons, incredibly impactful. I think you need one truth telling player bio in there. Maybe a Jim Bowden, oh, take yeah, Russell. Yeah, sure. I think you need one big muckraking, ugly piece of investigation. Like we talked about the Jordan rules as a good, the nineties had a bunch of them. Remember the book about Notre Dame called under the tarnished dome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember going to the bookstore to grab that one season on the brink. Yeah. Season on the brinks. Good. I mean that even that's a little more high tone, but there's just, there were just a lot of good muckraking ones. That's a good one. I think I Personal made a little, fouls. I made a little <laughs> starter list for you guys. Okay. To, to bounce off you guys that maybe people could listen to. I feel like these are essential sports books, but also books that each one brought something a little different to the table. So Breaks of the Game, which I still think is the best one, um, just because of the, the league that it captures compared to what the league is like now, but also like he is like 12, 14 page, just deep dives on like Billy Ray Bates and <laughs> Maurice Lucas and- uh-huh. The access that he gets with those guys just could never happen anymore. Um, so for a bunch of different reasons, I would go with that. Wait Till Next Year's, I think, is fun. We've talked about that in the pod before. William Goldman and Mike Lupka exchanging essays about this year in New York sports at Friday Night Lights. Bring in the Heat by Mark Bowden. There's a good one. Uh, where he spent the year with the Eagles. And that was like the early 90s were really the last time you could spend the year with a team and actually get real access. And it's the fish like out that, of water where the journalist isn't on that beat. Right. And, he and he's like, whoa, in. how does this work? 
And obviously he went on to do a whole bunch of great things. Bringing the Heat, I'm sorry, uh, Playing for Keeps was the sequel to Breaks of the Game. That was Halberstam with Jordan's last Bulls team. And that's a really good book and he didn't have the access. No. And I actually, that's a better book than I think people remember. Moneyball, Michael Lewis. For sure. Um, mm. I would say is the most influential sports book of this century, 21st. How to become incredibly rich and famous by writing a sports book. Unbelievable. And think of all the stuff that it led to. <laughs> I mean, is it clearly the most influential. How to get business people to read your sports book. <laughs> exactly. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the... Uh, what do they call that in like you know filmmaking? The X of the X, like it's the money ball of the X. Like that's yep. now a, a, a substantial pitch for any book. Um, by the way, I haven't the I've listed now six books, and all of them are must reads. Like if you're like I want to write about sports uh -huh. someday, it's like you have to read those six books. The City Game by Pete Axtom, pretty good. Um, it's just, it's fifty years old at this point. It's it's. Yeah. It's about that first Knicks title, but I think it's more apropos now because of what happened to the Knicks. I like that book. Um, New York basketball, but also like the Knicks are finally going to win the title. And now it's like, wow, that was 7 million years ago. The Last Shot by Darcy Fry. Beautiful book. Oh, great book. You could do a whole New York basketball trilogy. All-timer. Do Heaven as a Playground and uh, have a trilogy just, of New York basketball. Last Shot's and, my favorite of all of those. I think so. And, and I think The Last Shot came out like... Start, Marbury had just gotten to Georgia Tech. Yeah, he's like a ninth grader. Uh, but he's, he's a like ninth grader eighth, in the book, and yeah. And Darcy is driving him around, yeah. right? And taking him home. I remember like, buying that know, when it came out and being uh, so excited. But I think, believe Classic. it, did it come out as a uh, New York Times piece, I think, originally? Maybe. maybe. Or a Harper's, uh, mag maybe? Magazine piece. And then, yeah, it became the book. But like that was just complete investment. And that's not a long book either. That's just like, you, you plow through that in two days. Um, oh, yeah. Loose Balls, I think, is my favorite oral history book. It's mm -hmm. about the ABA, and the stories are great. And we've all heard these stories now, but if you're 25, you might not have. That league was insane. That's the kind of forgotten place book. Yeah. You go back to this place that was awesome and is now forgotten. Well, now it's a documentary. I think people are more <laughs> prone to just make a documentary than doing oral history. Ghosts of Manila by Mark Cram. Interesting choice. About Frazier. And it was the first time I remember somebody challenging the myth of Ali and like, actually, he wasn't that great of a guy because he basically tried to destroy Joe Fraser's life and turn him into an Uncle Tom and called him an Uncle Tom. And um, and Joe Frazier still is bitter about it all these years later. It's really an interesting reread. Life on the Run, Bill Bradley. Good choice. An athlete writing really thoughtfully about basketball who's also playing basketball does not happen very often. Phil Jackson did a Maverick, but I think this book's better. Season on the Brink, Bobby Knight. For sure. John Feinstein. Um, unfortunately, John's behavior the last 30 years has made people less prone to like this book. He's just uh, is cross, cross paths in an unflattering way with a lot of people. This book's awesome. Untouchable and, book. And just Knight is so raw and crazy and profane and a maniac <laughs> in this. Like you reread it, you're like, oh my God. He got everything. This guy was in co a college coach and he just had everything. Right, like he did six things a week that would force a resignation in 2019. Yeah. Agassiz's book, Open, I think is oh, probably yeah. the most influential book of this decade. And then I really like Pride Still Mattered, the Vince Lombardi book, the oh, autobiography yeah. of that. I thought that one and the Richard Ben Kramer one about Joe DiMaggio, I thought were my two favorite kind of- Pride Still Matters is Marinus? Yeah. Yeah. Anything, any sports book he wrote, that's another 
And then Koufax, Koufax, Jane, the Jane Levy book Koufax did. Those three, if you're just looking for like diving into an autobiography of of a sports figure, I think those are probably my three faves. And then after that, there's a whole bunch of random ones. Um, One that I have to mention though, do you ever read Thin Ice by Larry Sloman about a year with the New York Rangers? No. Mm -mm. The hockey team, New York Rangers. Yeah. Pretty good. Uh, It's it's like Studio 54 cocaine era. (laughs) A year, it's like it's kind of crazy. I think it's out of print, maybe for a reason. It's the perfect yeah. title for that. Sport. If you're <laughs> a hockey fan, did I mention the Ken Dryden book? No. The, uh, what was that one called? I wrote it's, that it's down. There's a famous one I've never read though. The game. I think. Yeah, one. that was the one I forgot. Yeah. Ken Dryden. That's the best hockey book ever. And he was the goalie for the Canadians during their big long run, and just is also like a like a great writer who's. Writing about you know Guy Lafleur, what makes Guy Lafleur tick? <laughs> I can't even imagine. With it would be like if uh, I don't know Andre Iguodala just wrote a book about the Warriors, and it was this incredibly <laughs> well written book about all this. So anyway, th- those are fifteen that I would start with. Um, you don't have to read all fifteen, but the point is, there's a lot of great books there's out there. Tons, tons. And every time I think I've read all of them, then I find like ten more that I haven't read. I was like, oh shit, that's been on my shelf forever, and I've never read that. And you know, it's funny to reread a book that you love, like Friday Night Lights, and it's like getting together with your old friends. It's like, oh, Booby Miles, I missed him. Mm-hmm. Booby, we're back. <laughs> Let's spend some pages together. That's an amazing, yeah. Jason, what's the best cycling book ever? Ah, well, I think most cycling fans would agree uh, that it's The Rider by a guy named Tim Crab, Crabby, Crab. Uh, but I have a secret favorite, which is a book called Dog in a Hat. Uh, by a guy named Joe Parkin. And it's like all great sports books are written by the people who are, you know, low level, right? You know, the people who weren't the superstars, the people that were in the trenches. And this is a book about just, you know, the dark days of Belgian muddy kermass racing. And it's just, you know, as you guys know. I the mean, dark, you know as opposed to the golden age of that type of racing. Uh, it's just great. And it's just, there's so much uh, skullduggery. And he's a really good writer and really funny. Uh, so I recommend Dog in a Hat by Joe Parkin. But I had a question for Curtis, which is that, what's the best Cowboys book? Oh, oh, that's. I really good. like the Jeff Perlman book. Oh, I love that. That one. was a good that's one. Great. So I'm I'm in the I'm in the the Bayless trilogy. Yeah, probably. He wrote, that's a good one. I mean, that's speaking of the muckraking nineties. Oh my god, he wrote a book about a, a a book about Tom Landry, God's coach. That was a muckraking book about Landry. Yeah, when that landed, in like Dallas. he was basically so like, that was a story. That yeah, was he a was big basically, deal. basically saying he was out to lunch like the last five oh, years, right? and he got all the players to tell it. And I mean, it's yeah, it's excruciating. That's a great book. I'd also just want to add like the player who dropped out book who just felt like this sports isn't for me. I'm out of here. And he's a little bitter about yeah, it. Yeah, and he's smoking dope or whatever. Like Dave Meggiesi out of the league yeah. is a great one. There's a great one about UT called Meat on the Hoof by a guy who went to the Daryl Royal UT football factory and was like, I hate this. This is These coaches are tyrants. And we right. wrote that. That's a great book. Like those books where you realize like sports has this side of just people that are like, I want out. I don't like this. Yeah, fuck this. Yeah. Wilt, Wilt Chamberlain's autobiography, which I wrote about in my book. I've read I, it. It was... It has this cover of just this close-up of Wilt. The with first, you're talking about the first one. Yeah, it's like no. Wilt, not just your average. Because the 10,000 Women one is the one that has no, all no. the attention now, which is, is an inferior book. This was 1973, and I think he was David still in Sean. the Lakers. Yeah. And uh, it's if, if you're interested in Wilt at all. That's a good one. That's another good one. It's a must read. Mm-hmm. It's really good. I also, I enjoyed Spike Lee's basketball book. That is. Best yeah, that was a fun one. 
Um, I think I've read every basketball book that's ever come out. And what's weird is they're not coming out anymore. I think the internet has just kind of swallowed up basketball books. Um, hmm. And I, I'm not really sure why that happened. I don't even Brian know. Brian Windhorse has a big LeBron book coming out, like sort of like a- Is that true? LeBron's second chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I saw he does. a copy of it. Yeah. There are books about Katie, Steph Curry books, LeBron books kind of come out, but it's sort of like the big kind of like unexpected work of reportage of what a lot of these are. You know, if Zach Lowe decided to go write that or something, right. like that book has not come out in a while. Well, it'd be interesting. Like, what if somebody wrote a book or wanted to write a book about LeBron and his buddies and this whole empire they built? But it was going to be like, a, I'm not, this isn't going to be a kiss ass book. I'm writing everything. I think it would be really hard to write a book like that because I think they'd have so much influence that they would just shut out who that person could talk to. Because we saw this happen with the Michael Leahy book about Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. where Jordan decided, I don't yeah. like the idea of this book. And that got, dude got frozen out for a year. And the resulting book was not that good because he was so bitter about the lack of access he had. But also, like, books are just reverse engineered now. It's partly, partly a function of the business now. Like, they, they start with the idea of who can get on television, who can get out there and promote, and people are going to care about. And so if you have access to an athlete, having LeBron and Maverick Carter run around and talk about the book on national television, which obviously they would do. If it's flattering. Yeah, right. So the, their, you know, uh, their involvement is central to it, is the most important thing. And, and and who writes it and how good it is is secondary to that. You forgot the live album three. Live, live album yeah, the four. Live album. Yeah. But I wonder if like docu, does these infomercial documentaries that everybody's making have replaced the book? Everybody's got a crew following them, filming them for some documentary about... <laughs> Here's what it was like when uh, when I came back from knee surgery. I feel that's happened. I feel my the, last year the reality show replaced the magazine piece, like Ice Truckers. That's a great <laughs> magazine piece that turned into like multiple seasons of a reality show. Right, and then you're right. Then the sports doc kind of just. You, you, you might have murdered the sports book. I mean, it's like once, because once it's a 30 for 30, <laughs> it's, my fault. it's your fault. But like once like you do the 30 for 30 SMU scandal, like that'd be about five years ago, that would have been in the zone of somebody can go write that book and remember right. somebody who was there and can go talk to everybody and get Eric Dickerson and all that stuff. But I do feel like once you see the 30 for 30, you're kind of like, I'm, I'm satisfied. I, I forgot to mention the Fab Five book that Mitch Album did, which I have complicated feelings on because yeah. I know Jalen's side of the story with it and everything. But. I was going to say it was also pre, pre, we found out a lot. After yeah, we found Fab a lot Five after, book. but in the moment, that was a pretty meaningful book because I hadn't really read somebody who spent time with college athletes who were having their jerseys sold for a hundred bucks while they, you know, had barely had enough money to buy two Big Macs, you know? Yeah. And it was such a yeah. moment that somebody captured it was such that. a moment. And it's, I'm glad that book exists. I, I, there are still a ton of sports books being written because they get mailed to my house all the time. And, oh, and the yeah. baseball industry, the, there's baseball books coming out left and right. And I think, I think there is an audience for them because they wouldn't keep making them if, you know, I, what kind, what book is out there? What book do you wish you could read, Brian? Right now. Like that's not written? Yeah, which book do you wish somebody was working on? It gets back to where we were with the uh, NBA player thing. But if but if Kevin Durant decided to write the real book, sure, I'd read that. With a ghostwriter? Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think if he wrote the Wilt book now and just laid it out, wouldn't you read that? Who's would you be excited about that? Who's our best person to write the Wilt book? Is it KD? He has the kind of... Is it Kyrie? No. It's gotta be. It's gotta be. It's gotta be bigger than Kyrie. 
I think it's got to be KD. Okay, here's. I, I just don't think he would be as candid as Wilt was in that book because there well, were less repercussions back but then. You said, but Wilt best- has a whole story about how he was in first class and got blown by the lady next to him, and <laughs> they had a blanket over her, and they, like he's just he just hard gave, to believe KD going there. He yeah. gave no fucks, and I, I think I think KD <laughs> would have to, you know. Um, yeah, Kyle's like, what's the name of this book? <laughs> oh, Sounds we, like he gave all the fucks. Can we put the Jose Canseco book as kind of an honorable mention on this list? Oh, what was that one called? The uh, uh, Juiced. The uh, book Jose wrote. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things. I remember when it came out and everybody was like, you big liar. And then it was like basically all true. Yeah. And it is a kind of a wildly entertaining book because he does go into the lives of athletes. Yeah. He, it it's amazing stuff. he gets sued. Well, if you're was, a publisher, it was right. I mean, yeah, true. Sued by Raphael Palmero. Yeah, true. <laughs> if you're a publisher and your boss gave you ten million bucks and said you can have any contemporary athlete, they still have to be active. You can have their autobiography. Who would you want? The honest, the the Wilt autobiography version of them, like they, well, they give you know, no fucks. You, no, you have to consider their personality love, and whether or not they will give you that kind of thing. I think you have to consider that. Like, the, I don't, like, like, I don't. Think Tiger gonna, would be a dud, right? We love the Tiger we love the real terrible. Tiger book. Yes, exactly. Yeah, when, exactly. We just got it. In fact, we didn't need Tiger for it. I think it's Serena Williams. I think that like she has you know a remarkable life. I think she has an incredible story to tell, and I think she has a wildly huge audience. And I think they would you know. I guess my issue up. with that is. I feel like she kind of did that with the docu-series. A little bit. I feel like I already went behind the curtain with her. Mm-hmm. A little bit. I, it would probably, for me, there's no basketball player. Is there a football player? You're saying there's no basketball player. You well, I, I just feel like I know. player who has a good book in them. I just feel like I know everything about all the basketball players. Richard Sherman could write a great book. Richard mm. Sherman's book would be good. I mean, it's not on the Serena level, but he could write a great book. There's no quarterback or no, no, no. Uh, TB12. Oh, I got it. I have the answer. I'm coming clean by Phil Mickelson. <laughs> the Phil Mickelson zero fucks book would be incredible. the Phil Mickelson. I don't care. Here are all my oh, stories about uh, all the people I've gambled with. All right, we have our answer. Here, 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 here. But this is the way to think about the basketball book, though. Like. Think of a guy who has been on a whole bunch of teams who wasn't a star, who was just kind of a great person. And like, you know, uh, I don't know, is it like... Like Andre Iguodala? Channing Fry. Like, is there somebody who has like a great book in there? Richard Jefferson? Just, Richard Jefferson. Too possible? nice. He's yeah, too I mean, nice. Yeah, now these guys are doing podcasts. Vince Carter? Vince Carter tells all these stories on his podcast. Mm-hmm. He, I think he'd, he'd, have, been, he'd have, have been so interesting. He would have been podcast. good. Yeah. Um, no one... Um, no one mentioned uh, Sacred Hoops. <laughs> sacred. A, which one was Sacred Hoops? Bill Jackson. Oh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm good. Did you read that, Bill? Yeah, you read all I'm basketball good. books? Did you read Sacred I Hoops? I read every Phil Jackson book. The most interesting one is the one he wrote after he left the Lakers in the mid-2000s when he just assassinates Kobe over and over again. <laughs> what was his old entire co- book? What was his co-writer's name? What was that guy? Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose. My former page two colleague. <laughs> Forgot about oh, Charlie Rose. All right, we're now at the point of the sports reporters coming to a close where Brian, uh, we're, I'm sorry, Jason is going to do a parting shot. Take the mm. stage, Jason. All right. Well, gentlemen, in the endlessly stimulating world of professional sports media, There is a secret, mysterious force out there that holds more power and more influence than any other entity. No, I'm not talking about Bill Simmons and Danny Ainge and Daryl Morey, who everyone everyone knows are co-conspiring to drag down the sport of basketball in the great city of New York. I'm talking about the critics Mm. and what the critics are saying. 
Not a day goes by in the world of sports where a reporter doesn't lean into some hockey player or basketball player or football star and tell them what the critics say. Critics say you don't want to be here. Critics say you're a disruptive force. And best of all, what do you say to your critics? These critics have a lot to say, and yet somehow they remain nameless. We never get a precise ID on who they are. Mm. It's possible they're very real people. It's also possible that critics are a convenient straw man, a somewhat sheepish journalistic device to insulate the questioner from the criticism. By the way, this device is abundant in all forms of journalism, from business to politics to semi-listenable media podcasts featuring a homogenous panel of similarly-minded middle-aged white men. <laughs> Brian, what do you say to critics who say you're too fixated on print journalism, a profession that hasn't been relevant since the late 1920s. Guilty. And Bill, what do you say to critics who claim you don't talk enough about the Boston Celtics season? <laughs> when the critics finally realize that reporters are stealing their questions, they're going to be angry. They might even get really mad. But to these critics, I have only one question. What do you have to say to the critics? Mm. Wow. Wow. That, that was that was almost too good. Yeah, that was too good. That was, <laughs> you should have taken that a gonna, little more. That, that's going to appear in the Wall Street Journal magazine in wow. like two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I just pressed uh, send, yeah. You really had an active train ride right in that on the, <laughs> on the iPhone. I may have had too much coffee at three that o'clock. Was, that yeah. was a good one. Yeah, it Thank made me you. think. What a way to end. Made me think. Really makes you think. Really made me think. <laughs> really makes you think. What a, productive, what a productive episode of the Sports Report. We had a great parting shot. We solved basketball. We recommended 25 sports books. What are the headlines that are going to be pulled from this about the Knicks and Bill Simmons? That's that's. My oh my question. god! Don't bring us down. <laughs> I'm so happy. My Knicks fans in my life are really mad at me. They're like, are you, are you, you don't realize what you did. You did this. I'm like, I didn't do anything. What did I do? He's a no, crazy person. I think person. that's true. I think they're onto something. I think you have sentenced no, the Knicks for 25 years. I apologize. I like the Knicks fans. Uh, Jason Gay, what can we read from you next at the Wall Street Journal? I'm going on vacation. You can read nothing. Great. Actually, read my colleagues. They're a lot smarter and better than I am. Okay. Brian Curtis? Press box and a couple of surprises that I'm going to tell you about when the uh, mics go off here. Oh, I can't wait. Here we go. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, thanks, guys. And enjoy the weekend, everybody. We'll be back on Monday, post-March Madness. With uh, I'm not going to have a podcast Sunday night, but listen to One Shining Podcast because we'll be breaking down the uh, the March Madness bracket. So see you on Monday. All right. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Thanks to Allbirds. They make stylish, comfortable footwear designed for life's everyday adventures like the Allbirds Wool Runners, which are made from wool. They look great. Design. Super simple. Perfect. For in and out on the town, in the office, or in my case, at my daughter's soccer game when it's muddy and cold and I need nice, warm wool runners. Oh, yeah. Head to allbirds.com to get your own very pair, your very own pair <laughs> of soft and cozy wool runners. Oh, yeah. Oh, and Billions. Thanks to them. It's launching again on Showtime, March 17th, 9 o'clock, the season where everything changes. Enemies become allies. Allies become enemies. Emmy Award winners Paul Giamatti and Damien Lewis are on hand as Chuck and Axe. Don't miss the new season of Billions Sunday, March 17th at 9 p.m. Only on Showtime. Listen to our Recapables podcast where we'll recap that episode after. Don't forget about One Shining Podcast this weekend. 
If you're ready for the madness, they will be going uh, tonight, actually, after uh, some really good college hoop games tonight. And then they're doing the bracket episode Sunday. They have you covered. They have Kyle covered. St. Patrick's Day. Do you believe that? It's Sunday night, St. Patrick's Day bracket show? Do you believe that? Does that mean you can't drink on St. Patrick's It'll Day? It'll be a good one. I guess it's about finding balance. Finding balance. my wool runners. <laughs> uh, enjoy the weekend, and uh, we'll be back on Monday. <laughs>